I told you last time that this was going to be a two-parter. It's going to be a more-parter than that. You know, I was thinking just this morning, I was reading through Philippians, and I've read through Philippians hundreds of times. And yet, there was something that captured my attention this morning that I've read many, many times, and I just sat there and thought about it and just considered how wonderful it is. And that's how the Word of God is. We get into it, even if it's familiar to us, the Lord may bring something to our attention that just draws us in, makes us curious, makes us want to explore, makes us want to understand. And so, last week I thought, I got two sermons in this passage, and this week I realized there's actually four, which is okay. We can move through it very carefully. There are big subjects in this exchange that Jesus has with this man that I don't want to just pass over. And so this one is going to focus specifically on verses 24 through 27. But I'm going to read the whole exchange once more, starting in verse 18. Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, and this is the part we're going to focus on, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We'll stop there. For thousands of years, as mankind has made his way on this earth, he has tried to explain the purpose of his existence. In every place, in every era, among every people group, Man has never ceased to develop ideas and philosophies to answer life's ultimate questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And what happens when we die? Some of these ideas take hold in a culture and they develop into traditions. And some of those traditions develop into worldviews. And some of those worldviews develop into religions. Each religion holding to a set of beliefs which claim to answer these fundamental questions. 
And along with those claims, requirements are established to guide the people on how to live now and what to expect in the life to come. And we discussed that briefly last week. This religion here says you must do these five things. This one over here says you must do these seven. And these over here more or less. And these ideas and requirements depend not only on which religion you ascribe to, but where in the world you live and where you find yourself in the historical timeline. Because often these things change over time. The common understanding in first century Judaism was that eternal life was dependent on your ability to keep God's law. If you wanted God's favor to be upon your life, and if you wanted any hope of life after death, you must satisfy His requirements which are found in His law. Do this and you will live. Along with that, the Jews believed that the sign of God's favor that you were walking in His ways was that He would reward you with financial prosperity. The more relative ease that you had and the more wealth that you acquired was the greater evidence that heaven was smiling down upon you. Being rich was the divine stamp of approval. Your level of comfort or your level of affliction had theological implications. So the greatest assurance you could have that heaven was your home and was... was sorry, was that you walked in obedience to the law and the evidence that you walked in obedience to the law was that God would make you rich. So you became this walking theological billboard of what your relationship to God was like, whether you were rich or poor. This was first century Jewish dogma. Now Jesus meets a man who by all appearances has everything going for him. He's a local leader, he's a very religious man, and Luke tells us he is very rich. And this man approaches Jesus and asks him the most important question of the ages, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe he was looking for validation. Maybe he wanted to be sure that he had checked every box and done every single thing that was necessary. Maybe he wanted to hear Jesus approve of him in front of all of the people. Now, surely when the people heard this embodiment of divine blessing, asking the question to Jesus, they assumed what the answer was going to be. But Jesus always surprises us, and Jesus handles this man much like he has handled others like him. Jesus is never uniform in his response to people. Have you noticed that? His response differs based on the kind of person who approaches him. And I have noticed that he comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. He comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. So if someone comes to him and is destitute and they're hopeless and they're aware of their sinfulness, 
He gives them good news and He gives them great hope. But if someone comes and is confident and they are self-reliant, He exposes what is, re- what is hidden and He reveals what's really going on. So they come to Him very comfortable in their situation and they often leave very afflicted. Jesus gives the law to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We talked about that last week. And this gives us insight into why Jesus responds to this man's questions by giving him the Ten Commandments. The the, the law, the Ten Commandments, were meant to humble us and show us our inadequacy. The Ten Commandments are not a ladder for you to climb up into heaven. They are a mirror to show you your guilt. And so Jesus gives him the law, and this man responds boldly, claiming that he's kept it all. He's like, oh yeah, those commandments, I've done all that. Which is why Jesus responds this way in verse 22. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow Me. Now Jesus does this not because the Gospel is that you must be poor to enter the kingdom of heaven, but because Jesus is uncovering that which is hidden. This man's heart is not pure because he is a lover of money. And so Jesus goes after the one thing that's keeping him out of the kingdom, the one thing that's keeping him from submission to God, and that is his money. And this is where we see a shift in this man's attitude. This is sort of review still. He seems proud of himself one moment, having kept the commandments, thinking that by his efforts he's close to the kingdom, And what Jesus does in this one simple statement is show him that he is nowhere near it. By saying this, he shows him where his allegiance really lies, and it is his wealth rather than God, which is his greatest treasure. Rather than having kept God's law as he claimed, he has broken God's laws just like the rest of us. And then Jesus explains something that would be contrary to what everyone would have believed. Wealth, rather than being a sign of God's approval, is quite possibly the greatest earthly hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. Rather than wealth being a sign that you were in, it was most often a sign that you were out. And this is what he says. This is verse 24. Jesus, seeing that the man had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a fascinating teaching by Jesus because what he's saying here is there is a demographic out there in the world that has a lesser chance of entering God's kingdom than the others. 
the wealthy are more likely to not be saved than the rest, is what he's saying. And I think the appropriate question here is, why? Why is it difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Now, this is not a new concept that Jesus is presenting here. In fact, Jesus is echoing many Old Testament passages that were given to the covenant people of Israel where God makes promises to them that He will bless them if they obey, but He gives them very dire warnings if they do get that blessing from God that it might turn their heart from Him. So God has promises in the Old Testament. If you obey Me, I will bless you. That makes absolute sense. God has created the universe. He has created you. And if you do things the way He has prescribed them, it's going to go well for you. But with these covenantal promises that God makes in the Old Testament, there is a warning. And let's consider one of them in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 10, this is God speaking through Moses. He says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God promised to prosper them if they kept the covenants, which is obviously where they get this idea of wealth being the sign that you're in God's favor. But the warning is that eh, be careful because that same wealth could turn your heart away from me. Now, these promises were never meant to communicate to, to Israel that if you see a rich man who's a Jew, he must be blessed by God. If you see a poor man who's a Jew, he must be cursed by God. That is a wrong interpretation of these promises. These were corporate promises, these were national promises. These were related to the soul of the nation. But notice the warning is that prosperity has the potential to blind people to God. Because wealth gives people a false sense of security, it causes the people to become self-reliant and independent, and the danger is that it will turn them away from the God who gave it to them. A couple chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse, chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. A couple verses later, verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Prosperity is dangerous because it has the tendency to remove the desperation that is part of the human condition. Prosperity, meaning you have an excess of money and things, has the tendency to take away the desperation that you have living in a fallen world. This is true in your own life. When are you more likely to be depending on God? When you're not sure how you're going to make your rent this month? Or when you can write a check and not even give it a second thought? When are you more likely to be dependent on God? Or think about the most difficult financial struggle you've ever had. You were between a rock and a hard place, and if you were a believer, I imagine you were crying out to God day and night saying, Lord, if you don't come through here, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so you're on your knees and you're seeking Him and you're pleading with Him, and that is exactly where He wants you. In a place of dependency. But prosperity gives the illusion that all is well and that it can shield you from life's trials. And if you are not careful, it can become your refuge. Wealth gives a person a false sense of security. It gives the illusion that they have power and control when those are attributes of God, not mammon. It's like the parable of the man who built bigger barns to store his crops and he says, I have got more than I need. I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to retire. I'm going to enjoy life. And God says to him, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Or like the church in Laodicea, which Jesus rebukes, they said, I am rich. I have prospered. I am in need of nothing. This was a church. And Jesus comes to them and says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Or it's like the rich man and Lazarus. This man's money hardened his heart to the point where he did not care about God. And this was evidenced in how he treated the man who was starving to death at his very gate. In Proverbs chapter 30, one of the writers of the Proverbs, Agur, is concerned about this. He has a sinful tendency that he realizes will ruin him spiritually. And he says this in Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I ask of you. He's talking to the Lord. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. 
Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, this writer knows his heart all too well. He says, Lord, don't give me too much, because if you give me too much, I might get too comfortable and forget about you. But on the other hand, don't give me too little, because if you give me too little and I'm desperate, I might sin and steal to feed myself. So he wants middle of the road. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Now I wonder how rare a person is that. I wonder how many in the modern American church, if they could have one wish, can't be something like that everyone would be saved, but just one wish of life under the sun, just one thing, well, I guess that I would just have enough money to do anything I wanted or that I would win the lottery or that I would be rich. I mean, I, I can see that desire in my heart. <clears throat> but how many would be concerned if they did get more that it would impact them negatively, that it would shipwreck their relationship with God, that it would spiritually ruin them? Probably not many. We find these same warnings, of course, in the New Testament. I had Richard read 1 Timothy 6. Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy. He wants Timothy to warn his people about contentment and not desiring riches. And he says in 1 Timothy 6.9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs or many sorrows. This is like the New Testament version of those Old Testament warnings about forgetting the Lord. Now, I hope you recognize that money is not the problem, but it's the heart that attaches itself to the money. Notice it's the love of money. I've heard this verse misquoted many times. Well, you know what they say, money's the root of all evil. No, money is neutral. Money is nothing. It's part of life under the sun. It's a necessary thing that we use to buy and sell and live and so forth. It is neutral, but the heart that attaches itself to that thing is where the problem comes in. And you know you can attach your heart to any good thing or any neutral thing and it becomes a problem. It's not sinful to be rich, nor is it virtuous to be poor. 
Money is not like a hot potato that the believer needs to get rid of. But the warning is that if you do become rich, you will have temptations that many in this life will never have. And some of those temptations involve turning you away from the path of God. So Paul gives these very strong warnings. Ruin and destruction. I just wanted to win the lottery. And how many people's testimonies after winning the lottery has been just that? Have you heard this? How many people go bankrupt after winning the lottery? Paul is, he wants to make sure he's not saying it's a sin to be rich. He knows there are rich people in the first century church. He knows there are rich people in Timothy's church. But he wants to make sure that their wealth keeps God at the center. So he says a little bit later, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul is wants to make sure they don't misunderstand. It's not sinful to be wealthy, but it can be a great snare to a person's life. There is a poison in the modern church today called the prosperity gospel. And this teaches that if you are a Christian, God wants you to be wealthy. That is one of the signs that you are one of God's kids. It's God's stuff, and He gives His stuff to His kids. And so the accumulation of wealth is a sign that you are a child of God, which is just a rehashing of that Jewish first century error. It's the same thing. And if you consider all of these warnings that the Bible gives, it makes me wonder, why would God take those whom He loves and has saved and put in their hands that which has been proven to be the greatest obstacle to salvation? Like, Think about what they're saying. God expects you, Christian, to be rich. And you drive around in your BMW or your Mercedes and you show off. That's your witness to the world. Look at me. Look how blessed I am by God. Why would God want to give you something that is going to be a stumbling block to you that might turn your heart away from Him? But this is supposedly the evidence that you're His. Why would God supposedly bless His children with that which has the greatest potential to pull them away from Him? And the answer is, He wouldn't and He doesn't. Now, He may to some. There are people who God loves on this earth who are dirt poor. 
And being rich is a sign of nothing other than a greater responsibility to be faithful with what God has given you. Think of the parable of the talents. I'll give you this this many. I'll give you this many. I'll give you this many. The parable of the minors. I'll give you five. I'll give you two. I'll give you one. And you go out and you invest it and you come back and give an account for what God gave you. So Paul doesn't tell Timothy that the rich in their congregation must abandon all of their wealth as if they can't have a real relationship with God otherwise, but they must put their wealth in its proper context. It cannot be their greatest treasure. It cannot be the center of their lives. It cannot be that thing that they are pursuing as they are given life on this earth. So he tells them, Not to be haughty, as wealth can often bring a kind of arrogance. He tells them to be rich in good works. He tells them to be generous and ready to share. We also have examples in the Bible of believers who were very wealthy. Abraham was very wealthy. Job was very wealthy. Solomon was very wealthy. He was unfaithful in the area of women and idolatry, but financially he seemed like he was somewhat faithful there. Boaz in the book of Ruth was probably wealthy based on the number of servants he had and the land that he had. So it's not something that Christians cannot experience, but if it does not have God at the center, if it is not all about Him, if it is not done for His purposes, then people become deceived, our hearts become hardened, and it can draw us away to other things as our focus. So riches have the potential to keep people out of the kingdom of God, and they have the potential to dull the spiritual life of those in the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are sitting here and thinking, this does not pertain to me at all. (laughs) Man, I am so far from rich. I mean, you should see my bank account. This does not pertain to me at all. Some of you are thinking that. I know it. But let me remind you, you are within the top 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet. And if you incorporate all of recorded history, you become in the top 1% of all the people who have ever lived on the planet. I don't care if you had trouble paying rent this month. It's a fact. The level of comfort, prosperity, and relative ease that you experience is unparalleled in the history of the world. Kings in the ancient world did not have it as good as you have it. Let me give you one modern example. I was reading a missionary story to my kids the other night about a missionary in Congo. And so, Congo is a nation in Africa, and I decided, I wonder what their life is in comparison to ours. Listen to this. The average annual income in the Democratic Republic of Congo is about $730. That is annual income on average. 
Compare that with the average annual income in America, which is somewhere around 55000 give or take. That means the average American earns more in one week than the average citizen of Congo earns in an entire year. If you consider history, if you consider the amount of poverty in the world today, if you consider entire nations and even continents that are made up primarily of lower class and extremely poor people, you would be considered rich. You have a place to live. You have a fridge that is stocked full of food. You have a car. You have expendable income. So you can go to Starbucks and get your grande caramel macchiato with skim milk and two pumps vanilla. That costs you six fifty or whatever. So lest you think I'm preaching to the wrong crowd, I'm preaching to you and I'm preaching to me. But I think we are so insulated from seeing extreme poverty that we do not realize how well off we are. And that if you were to pluck someone out of one of these poor countries and just have them walk through the church parking lot for them to look at our cars, they would see, how is it that everyone is so rich? I have never gone without a meal, out of necessity. I have never had to go to bed hungry because there wasn't food available, not once. I bet that is the testimony of everyone in this room. Not once. I have never had to get on my knees and ask God to provide dinner for me because I did not have it. We pray before our meals. We give thanks before we eat, which is the righteous thing to do. But it's never been a desperation. It's never been, oh God, I don't have anything to eat tonight or tomorrow and I don't know what I'm going to do. There is a desperation that is historically common to the human condition. The desperation that hundreds of millions of people have experienced in their life from the time they were born to the time they die. And we have not experienced that. We have been given great excess. And because we have so much excess, this should be greatly concerning to us because this very thing, money, Jesus says will keep people out of the kingdom. That should cause all of us to say, uh-oh, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Difficult. Now, the rich have many advantages in this life. They have access to many privileges that the poor do not. But this is one area where they are actually at a disadvantage. If you are rich, you are at a disadvantage to enter the kingdom of God. Think about where there are churches and rescue missions and evangelistic outreach. Do you find those more in low-income neighborhoods and slums? Or do you find those more 
in neighborhoods in Beverly Hills and Malibu. I have never been part of a ministry that was an outreach to the rich. <laughs> Just thought of that. Hey man, we're going to go into Beverly Hills and uh, you know, go witness at the Rolls-Royce Center down there. And <clears throat> Now, if that wasn't bad enough, he then takes it one step further and puts a picture in the people's minds of how difficult it really is. Verse 25, he says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult is it? Jesus uses hyperbole here, which is an exaggeration for the sake of effect, to describe how difficult. It's so difficult, it's impossible. It's impossible. Jesus chooses the largest animal that would be found in the Middle East, the camel, and the smallest opening visible to the naked eye. And he says, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God would be like this camel going through this one millimeter tiny little space. And it's meant to be an absurd picture to communicate the impossible. Now, some over the centuries have tried to take the sting away from the words of Jesus here and have tried to make this into some different analogy. And the story goes something like this. Maybe you've heard it. There was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And it had a very low arch that was impossible to enter unless one removed the burden from their camel and stooped low to enter. And what Jesus was really saying here is the only way for you to enter the kingdom of God is you have to unload your material goods and humble yourself and then you can enter the kingdom. This idea was first proposed in the 11th century, meaning it's never been found prior to that. There's no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed There is no gate with this name, and this concept would have been totally foreign to this first century audience. But people are trying to make sense of this. Wait a second, he's saying it's impossible for rich people to go into the kingdom, so he can't really mean that, so it must mean this. But the picture that Jesus portrays here does not need to be reinterpreted, it just needs to be believed. And it seems like his audience didn't have any problem understanding the saying because of their reaction. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? If there was a gate where you could take the burden off your camel and go through, I think then they would say, well, some people would be saved. It's just hard to get through. No, they say, well, then who can be saved? Notice they don't say, then what rich people can be saved? They say, then who can be saved? Why do they say that? Because this guy is a poster child for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He is a leader. He is rich. He is young. He is religious. 
And they're looking at his life and saying, well, if he doesn't have what it takes to get in, then nobody's getting in. Then who can be saved? And here is the key. And this is where we're going to pick it up next time. I hate to do that, but there's a whole other thing we've got to talk about. Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus takes them to the extreme. He shows them the insufficiency that wealth brings. And rather than the rich lacking in nothing, they are lacking in everything of eternal importance. And rather than wealth being a sign of security, it becomes a sign of great uncertainty. But then He reminds them of the One who can do all things, even bring a camel through the eye of a needle, even turn a rich man into a child of God. The rich man who would never, 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 never surrender his wealth and follow Jesus can if God is at work in him. In fact, we have proof of this very thing in the next chapter, and I want to close with this. Turn one page to Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So salvation is a miracle. It is extremely, particularly a miracle if the person is rich because there is an obstacle there. And yet, with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much that You have prospered us Thank You that You have blessed us here in this nation where we have not had to go without and we have had an abundance. And yet, Lord, we recognize the danger. 
And we pray that you would not turn our hearts away. But Lord, that we would see everything, all of these blessings in light of how we can serve you even more. And so, Lord, keep us humble, keep us desperate, keep us fully dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen.